Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we'll cover one of the founders of urology, or at least in the United States, Dr. Hugh Hampton Young. In addition to starting one of the first modern urology training programs in the world, Johns Hopkins, and starting the Journal of Urology, Dr. Young also performed the first prostatectomy for cancer. Now, amazingly, the technique he used was first performed by one of the most interesting characters I've come across in the history of surgery. In fact, this person is so fascinating that we'll do a mini-podcast within a podcast on him. It'll make the episode a little bit longer than average, but I'm excited to tell you all about it. So let's get the flow going in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Hugh Hampton Young was born in San Antonio, Texas on September 18th of 1870. His father was the Confederate Brigadier General William Hugh Young, who fought in many of the Civil War battles across Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. His paternal grandfather was Confederate Colonel Hugh Franklin Young, a member of the Texas Militia, which was part of the Snively Expedition of the 1840s during the Republic of Texas's War for Freedom from Mexico. Now, given this military background, it should come as no surprise that Hugh wanted to follow in the footsteps of his father and grandfather and begged to be sent to West Point, which is the United States Military Academy. However, this was after the Civil War, and as the Confederate side lost, his father could not tolerate the idea of his son in a Yankee uniform. On his mother, Frances Kemper's side, his grandfather was a surgeon, and Young decided to follow that path instead. Attending the University of Virginia starting in 1890, Young began with courses for a Master of Arts degree. However, he was such an excellent student that by 1893 he obtained his Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts degrees while simultaneously taking medical courses and passed his medical examinations in 1894, earning his M.D. Dr. Young initially returned to his hometown of San Antonio to set up a practice. However, he quickly realized that he lacked the best medical knowledge available, so he went to the recently opened Johns Hopkins University, which was quickly becoming a mecca to medicine's best and brightest to learn more. Upon arriving, Young was dismayed to find out that there were no positions available in surgery, which was his primary interest, so he rotated through pediatrics, bacteriology, and pathology. And while not strictly related to his future contributions to surgery, I did come across some interesting stories from his time in those services. While working in bacteriology, Young accidentally broke a vial of diphtheria and contracted the disease. Now, diphtheria is a bacteria which causes, among other things, thick, so-called pseudomembranes that line the upper airways. In fact, the name diphtheria comes from the Greek word for leather, a reference to those thick pseudomembranes. In an era before antibiotics, the treatment available was an antitoxin, which means antibodies, produced in horses, which is what saved Young. Now, FYI, the vaccine for diphtheria would not be available until the early 1930s. Now, here's a fun fact that I came across that I absolutely had to share. In 1925, there was an outbreak of diphtheria in Nome, Alaska. The supply of antitoxin in the town had expired, and so a fresh supply had to be brought in from Anchorage, which was nearly a thousand miles away. Since planes could not be used, as this occurred in January, and shipping by sea would be too slow, a team of 20 mushers and more than 100 sled dogs relayed the package from Seward, where the serum had arrived by train from Anchorage, to Nome. In just five and a half days, the serum arrived, having traveled 674 miles, or 1,085 kilometers. The Norwegian musher Gunnar Kazan and his lead dog Balto were the ones to complete the final leg of the journey and became famous. To honor this, there is a statue of Balto in Central Park. 
The entire journey itself is known as the great race of mercy. Okay, now having recovered from diphtheria, Dr. Young was making house calls on the pediatric service when he saw a child whom he thought had diphtheria. He suggested antitoxin, but the family physician had never heard of it and refused to be a part of that treatment. Young and an assistant injected the child, but they were nearly suffocating. The disease has been called the strangling angel of children. And Young realized the patient would need an immediate tracheotomy, or a breathing hole cut into the neck. The pediatrician involved thought this could only be done in a hospital, and the child would not survive long enough to make the trip, and so left the house. Young had no surgical supplies with him, but he went to the nearby grocery store, bought some glass tubing, bent it with a kerosene burner, wrapped it in silk thread, and made a wooden crossbar to hold the tube in place. He rushed back to the child, made an incision with a pocket knife, and inserted the makeshift tracheostomy tube. The child made a full recovery. Amazing. Now, eventually, Young was able to fill in a vacancy created by a vacation and was allowed to work in the surgical dispensary until a vacancy in the surgical resident staff appeared. He was accepted by Dr. William Halstead, see podcast 35, and so began his formal surgical training. Within a couple of years, 1897 to be exact, another position opened up. This came about when Dr. James Brown, who had been in charge of the urology ward, died suddenly at the age of 41 from a massive pulmonary hemorrhage, likely secondary to tuberculosis, which he contracted in medical school. In October of that year, Young literally ran into Dr. Halstead. I'll let Dr. Young describe the encounter. Quote, One day in October 1897, I was walking rapidly down the long corridor of the hospital. As I turned the corner, I ran into Dr. Halstead with great force and almost knocked him down. I caught him just before he hit the floor and began to apologize profusely. Dr. Halstead, still out of breath, said, Don't apologize, Young. I was looking for you to tell you we want you to take charge of the Department of Genito-Urinary Surgery. I thanked him and said, This is a great surprise. I know nothing about genito-urinary surgery. Whereupon, Dr. Halstead replied, Well, Chennai said, You didn't know anything about it, but we believe you could learn. End quote. And while Young initially wanted to practice general surgery, a career in urology was launched as Young took over the Department of Genito-Urinary Diseases of the Dispensary on November 29, 1897, at just 27 years old. He would go on to spend his entire career at Hopkins, retiring in 1940, having a huge influence on the development of the field of urology in every way, from building a model training program starting an influential journal, and of course, contributing to the creation and improvement of many surgical procedures. Dr. Young based the nascent urology residency program after those created by Halstead and Osler, for surgery and medicine respectively, at Johns Hopkins. It was a structured five-year training, and part of the program included time spent with Dr. Foley in St. Paul, Minnesota, see episode 26. And, due to a chance encounter, Dr. Young was able to secure funding to open a urology institute at Johns Hopkins dedicated to teaching and research. In early 1912, a big burly man came to see Dr. Young and introduced himself as James Buchanan Brady. Mr. Brady had an obstructing prostate gland, which was giving him difficulties in urinating. Due to his numerous other health problems, no surgeon would operate, but Young was willing, and so on April 7th of 1912, he operated on Mr. Brady's enlarged prostate with his punch under local cocaine anesthesia. And we'll get to the procedure in a minute. 
Now, it turns out that the patient was one Diamond Jim Brady, a wealthy philanthropist, and in thanks for his treatment, he donated a large sum of money to the medical school to build a urology institute. So, who was Diamond Jim Brady? Well, I'm glad you asked. Born in New York City in 1856 into a poor Irish immigrant family, Jim worked his way through the rail transport industry, making millions selling railroad supplies and through investments in Wall Street. The nickname came from his penchant for jewels, particularly diamonds, and he had an estimated $2 million worth of jewelry, which would be the equivalent of $20 million in today's dollars. Part of this collection even included a diamond-studded umbrella and a pair of diamond-studded glasses for his dog. So in addition to his appetite for precious stones, he also had a prodigious appetite for food. According to legend, he would eat enough food for 10 people in one sitting. The owner of his favorite restaurant was known to have called Jim Brady the best 25 customers I ever had. His lifestyle became the stuff of legend in the Gilded Age of America. Brady was often seen at the poker and baccarat tables of the famous Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York and was known as a dancer and big tipper in the nightlife of Broadway. In addition to owning the first automobile in New York City, he also owned and raced thoroughbred horses and was known to have had a long-term relationship with a famous singer and actress of the day named Lillian Russell, though he never married. Diamond Jim Brady lived to the age of 60, dying of a heart attack in 1917. With funding secured from Diamond Jim, Dr. Young needed to figure out how to create an institute dedicated to urology. And so he traveled to Europe to study the only hospitals at the time that were entirely devoted to urology, St. Peter's Hospital for Stone in London, England, and Hôpital Necker in Paris, France. Young used these to design what would become the James Buchanan Brady Urological Institute, which opened its doors on January 21, 1915, and is still open to this day. In addition to creating what would become a world-renowned center for urology, Dr. Young also contributed to the field by nearly single-handedly starting the Journal of Urology, with the first issue appearing in February of 1917. However, in 1920, the American Urological Association planned to publish their own journal, which would create significant competition. Instead, Young suggested that they take over the Journal of Urology, which they did, and it became the official organ of the American Urological Association in 1921. Now, before we get to the meatus of the subject, there's one more area of Dr. Young's life that I want to cover. Let's backtrack a few years to the entry of the U.S. into World War I. Young, then 47 years old, volunteered for service overseas. While in the military, he led a well-organized campaign that dramatically reduced the incidence of venereal disease, meaning sexually transmitted infections, among the troops, and published the Manual of Military Urology in 1918, which dealt mostly with control of venereal and dermatological diseases. But let's take a minute to consider the context in which Dr. Young worked. Venereal disease caused 416,891 hospital admissions among British and Dominion troops. While rarely fatal, it frequently required one month of intensive hospital treatment. At its peak, there were as many as 11,000 troops in hospital for VD, enough to fill an entire division, which is obviously a significant issue for a fighting force. And here's another interesting historical fact. It was customary for the soldiers next of kin to be notified of a hospital admission and the reason for admission. But this policy had to be changed in 1916 
after a major committed suicide, after learning his wife had been informed of his venereal disease. The different Allied forces had different approaches to dealing with this scourge. The British Expeditionary Force supplied soldiers with condoms, allowed them to visit approved brothels, and required soldiers with a suspected exposure to visit a treatment center, even punishing those that did not. Now, despite these measures, by 1917, 357 per 1,000 troops were infected with VD, the year the U.S. joined World War I. Now, before I get into the next part, I just warn those with a more delicate constitution may want to skip past the next 30 seconds or so. All right. So part of the problem became that since a trip to the hospital meant getting out of the trenches for a few weeks, some men would transfer their watery discharge, called gleet, via matchstick to another man to get himself intentionally infected, who would often pay for the privilege. So let's talk a second about the word gleet, which was a new one for me. Now, gleet means a watery discharge from the urethra due to a chronic infection such as gonorrhea and comes from the Latin glitus, which means viscous or sticky. This evolved to the old French word gleet, which meant slime, mud, or filth, and then Middle English glet, meaning slimy or mucous matter. By the mid-14th century, the word gleet appeared, meaning slimy, greasy filth. Sorry. Now, little side fun fact. Horses can get a chronic discharge from one or both nostrils from a number of causes, and this is called nasal gleet. Okay, I'll stop and welcome back to listeners that may have skipped that part. Dr. Young was made a major in charge of venereal health of the Doughboys in France, which was the nickname of American infantrymen, and fought prostitution near American bases vigorously and with full cooperation of General Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Force. This cooperation began early, as Young, en route to Europe via ship, was given the task of presenting to General Pershing on VD and had only four days to prepare. Now, despite this, he was able to impress the general enough to be made the director of the Division of Urology for the American Forces. Young instituted a number of new policies, including updating the treatments and prophylaxis provided to troops, one which led to an order that VD prophylaxis was mandatory for any man returning to base intoxicated and making it forbidden for troops to buy or receive any alcohol that was stronger than light beer or wine. Now, another policy Young implemented was that troops would be treated for both gonorrhea and syphilis on base rather than at distant hospitals. Each regiment would have a small treatment room for prophylaxis as well as 12 to 14 beds for recovering soldiers. Troops on leave in Paris had to report back to their rooms by 0100 hours to reduce contact with prostitutes and allow time for prophylaxis. Treatment for civilian women was offered anonymously and free of charge to reduce infections at the source. In fact, the American military set up a medical care team for civilians at the headquarters of the urological division in Neufchateau, France, known as the American Medical Service, which was well received by the French people. Officers also played a role by giving frequent talks about VD and carrying out inspection of troops twice a month. If a soldier became infected, they would be court-ordered and deprived of pay. The result of these policies was that by the end of the war, rates of VD in the U.S. military dropped to a low of 19 per 1,000 men. In acknowledgement of this feat, Young was promoted to colonel in 1918 and received Distinguished Service Medal in 1919. Okay, now let's talk about Dr. Young's surgical innovations, of which there are many. He invented the so-called boomerang needle, 
a curved needle used for operating in deep incisions like in prostate surgery, along with a needle holder which had a spring mechanism in the handle. Interestingly, while still called the Young Boomerang Needle Holder, or sometimes co-credit is given to Millen, an Irish-born English urologist who introduced the retropubic approach to prostatectomy, and we'll touch on him later, one article I read actually claims a different inventor. This was a Cuban-born French urologist named Joaquin Alboran. But in fairness to Young, the author did claim that Young greatly improved on the design. Another innovation was the discovery of mercurochrome as an antiseptic. Now, some of you may remember having this put on minor cuts and scrapes as kids, but at the time, it was an important discovery. The original chemical was a red dye, which explains its color, but a mercury molecule was added, and Young and others investigated this, discovering that it had an antiseptic property, and, in particular, was excreted through the urinary tract, making it useful for infections there, in an era before antibiotics. Of course, ingesting mercury is bad, so that application was stopped. But after a change in the manufacturing process, it became a very popular topical antiseptic known as mercurochrome. And one personal note about Dr. Young and mercurochrome. He married a woman named Bessie Colston in 1901 and was heavily influenced by her and her family to become a patron of the fine arts and music, which we'll come back to in a bit. Together, they had four children, but at the age of 48, Bessie developed a streptococcus viridans septicemia, or in layman's terms, blood poisoning. Young tried to cure her with intravenous injections of mercurochrome, but she became very anemic. Young arranged for her brother to give her a blood transfusion, but in a world before hematology understood how to check if the blood would match, patients would sometimes have violent and often fatal reactions to blood transfusions which is exactly what happened to Bessie. Young never married again. But clearly it's his work on prostate surgery that is the main reason we're talking about Dr. Young. Now, the history of prostate surgery would make for an entire episode or two, but we'll just focus on a couple of procedures here. The first definitive operation on an enlarged prostate is actually credited to French surgeon Ambroise Paré, whom we recently covered in episode 80. This was way back in 1575, when he used a punch-type instrument to remove so-called carnosities, a term meaning fleshy growths, here meaning an enlarged prostate encroaching on the urethra. Now, without going into too much detail, this worked basically by having a hollow sound or tube with a sharp-edged tip connected to a wire running through this tube inserted into the urethra. Now, the tip would be advanced into the urethra, the excess tissue would fall into the space between the tip and the tube, and then be clipped off by pulling the tip back against the sharp edge of the sound. Amazingly, this simple idea of using a cutting or destructive instrument through a hollow tube inserted into the urethra to remove obstructing prostate tissue is essentially the basis of endoscopic prostatic surgery today. However, as in many things, Pari was well ahead of his time. It wasn't until the early 19th century that the idea of transurethral surgery, meaning through the urethra, really caught on, with a number of devices being invented that could cut the prostatic tissue. The idea of using heat, or cautery, to help control the excessive bleeding caused by cutting into the prostate didn't arrive until 1873, when Italian surgeon Enrico Bottini used a wire loop through an insulated tube to burn away tissue. The problem here was that it was blind meaning the operator couldn't see what they were cutting. In 1897, 
Fraudenberg of Berlin modified Bottini's device by combining it with an irrigating cystoscope, meaning a camera that can also flush water through. This was the method of choice until 1909, when our own Dr. Young introduced a cold punch. This was a metal tube with a curved beak, and behind it a large fenestra, or opening. Fenestra is the Latin word for window. So if you hear something described as fenestrated, that just means it has holes or windows in it. Now you know. Okay, so back to Young's punch. There was an electric bulb at the external end of the tube to allow for visualization. Cutting was done by an inner tube that sheared off tissue protruding through this window. Each piece of tissue removed had to be retrieved with forceps. In 1913, Young reported on over 100 cases of use of the punch without fatality. Two years later, he replaced the cutting tube with an electrically heated cautery tube and made the outer tube double-walled to allow water to circulate to cool it. So that's the story of the Young punch. But let's talk about open surgical removal of the prostate. Keep in mind that the first procedures that cut into the prostate were not to remove the prostate, but rather to get into the bladder to remove bladder stones, which we covered in episode 67. That's why the first prostate operations took the perineal approach, or through the perineum, and that's also why the position the patient is placed in for a perineal prostatectomy is called the lithotomy position, i.e. to remove stone. In fact, the first described removal of prostate tissue were reports of incidental excision during a surgery for bladder stone removal. Sir William Ferguson has been credited as the first to realize that the prostate could be removed in this way. In the 1830s, he accidentally removed some prostate tissue while performing a lithotomy on an elderly man. Following the surgery, the patient noted that he could pee more easily, and so Ferguson started to remove prostate tissue during lithotomy surgery for patients that needed it. However, the first person to perform the first planned and complete removal of the adenoma, or the benign enlarged part of a prostate, by enucleating or shelling out both lateral lobes and median lobes in 1891, was the frontier surgeon Dr. George E. Goodfellow of Tombstone, Arizona, who didn't report it until 1902. And here is where we pause for a mini-episode within an episode, as Dr. Goodfellow is a fascinating subject. Goodfellow's father, Milton, went to California in 1853, as did so many other young men, in the gold rush that dramatically altered that state, and contributed to the creation of the so-called Wild West, which would play a major role in George's career and life. His mother, Amanda, followed her husband to the frontier two years later, requiring boat travel to the Isthmus of Panama, which she crossed by mule, as the Panama Canal would not be created for 60 more years, and finally by the steamship, the SS Golden Gate, arriving in San Francisco in 1855. George was born in Downeyville, California on December 23rd of 1855. After growing up amongst the mining camps, his parents sent him, at the age of 12, to a private school in Pennsylvania. He then went on to the California Military Academy in Oakland before studying civil engineering at the University of California at Berkeley. But the real adventures didn't begin until George joined the U.S. Naval Academy in 1872. He became a midshipman and earned the title of the school's resident boxing champion. Within six months of joining, he was dismissed from the academy for hazing and physically attacking the academy's first black cadet, John H. Conyers.
Hey, I said his life was interesting. I didn't say he was a great person. Now, George then went on to Pennsylvania to study medicine, first apprenticing with relatives before attending and graduating from Worcester University Medical School with honors. He opened a general practice, first in Oakland and later in the Arizona Territory, where his father was a mining executive. It was around this time that George had his first brush with one of the legendary events of the Wild West. He decided to join the Army and was to serve with George Armstrong Custer's 7th Cavalry. However, his orders to join the unit were delayed, so he was not with them on June 25th of 1876 in the infamous Battle of the Little Bighorn. In what has become known as Custer's Last Stand, the unit suffered huge losses, essentially wiping out the 7th Cavalry. Instead, Goodfellow became the acting assistant surgeon at Fort Whipple in Prescott, Arizona, and then became the contract surgeon at Fort Lowell near Tucson. In the same year as the Custer's Last Stand event, George married Catherine Colt. Now again, he crosses paths with Wild West lore in that Catherine's cousin was Samuel Colt, inventor of the iconic Colt Frontier six-shooter revolver, which was involved in probably the most famous event in the history of the Old West, as was Goodfellow, but we'll get to that soon. Now before that event, Goodfellow cancelled his army contract and moved his family in 1880 to Tombstone, in what was then called Cochise County in the Arizona Territory. This was a brand new town, less than a year old, when he moved. It had been created due to the silver mining boom and attracted, let's say, a variety of colorful characters. There were already 2,000 people living there when Goodfellow arrived, but only 12 physicians, and only three other than George, that had medical school diplomas. Now, despite already living quite a life of adventure, Goodfellow was only 25 when he hung his shingle up on the second floor of the Crystal Palace Saloon. Sharing office space on this floor was Deputy U.S. Marshal Virgil Earp, brother of the famous lawman Wyatt Earp. George was known to enjoy the benefits of working in the same building as a saloon, frequenting the bar, playing faro, and gambling. While working in Tombstone, he became famous for treating gunshot wounds. In fact, despite working in the literal frontier, he published articles in respected medical journals, often on the subject of dealing with gunshot wounds. He was remarkably successful in this, possibly in part due to the fact that he was an early adopter of Lister's theory of antiseptic surgery, something we covered way back in episode 4. It was said that he was even able to successfully repair gunshot wounds of the abdomen, a feat almost unheard of in the late 19th century. Possibly hoping to counter this, Goodfellow even studied and published on the bullet-resistant properties of silk fabric. Given that he was practicing in such an isolated setting, Goodfellow had to treat all sorts of injuries and illnesses. He even published on venomous reptile bites, which he likely saw his fair share of. And having seen so much trauma, he's been considered by some as the first civilian trauma surgeon in the U.S., which makes sense given the level of violence in this environment. Goodfellow has also been referred to as the gunfighter's surgeon, and was involved in what is arguably the most famous shootout in the history of the Wild West. At approximately 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 26, 1881, there was a gunfight at the O.K. Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. While it only lasted 30 seconds, the event would cement the legacies of those involved. 
The shootout was the boiling over of a long simmering feud between a gang of outlaws known as the Cowboys and Town Marshal Virgil Earp, Special Policemen Morgan and Wyatt Earp, and Temporary Policeman Doc Holliday. A quick side note for those that don't know, as it seems to be at least tangentially related, John Henry Holliday had a degree in dentistry from the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery, hence the nickname Doc. However, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis soon after graduating and moved to the southwest part of the U.S., hoping that climate would ease his symptoms. It was there that Doc Holliday became a professional gambler and developed his friendship with Wyatt Earp. Back to the shootout. Dr. Goodfellow actually treated the gunshot wounds of Virgil Earp, who had been shot through the calf, and Morgan Earp, who had been shot across both shoulder blades. And in what is certainly an excellent display of neutrality, he also ministered to the fatally wounded cowboy Billy Clanton, even removing his boots at Billy's request. Dr. Goodfellow's role in the feud was not nearly over. He reviewed Dr. H. M. Matthews' autopsy reports on the three cowboys killed in the shootout and testified at an inquest into the events at the O.K. Corral. Interestingly, it was claimed that cowboy Billy Clanton's arms were either holding his coats open by the lapels or were raised in the air, suggesting that he was shot while surrendering. However, the nature of his wounds identified at autopsy did not corroborate this story, but rather exonerated the defendants, the Earps and Doc Holliday, who were acting in self-defense. Two months later, on December 28, 1881, Virgil Earp was ambushed as he was walking from the Oriental Saloon to his room, getting hit in the back and left arm with three loads of double-barreled buckshot from approximately 18 meters or 60 feet away. Goodfellow attended Virgil and recommended amputating the arm, which Virgil refused. So Goodfellow, using the medical tools in his bag, operated on Virgil right there in the Cosmopolitan Hotel, removing 76 millimeters, or 3 inches, of his shattered humerus bone, part of his upper arm. While this left Virgil permanently crippled, he was able to save the arm. Unfortunately, when Morgan Earp was likewise ambushed, this time on March 18th of 1882, the shot was fatal. While Goodfellow and other physicians did examine him, it was determined that surgery was not an option. Goodfellow, acting in his role of county coroner, performed the autopsy on Morgan himself and described the injury. He found the bullet, quote, entering the body just to the left of the spinal column in the region of the left kidney, emerging on the right side of the body in the region of the gallbladder. It certainly injured the great vessels of the body causing hemorrhage, which undoubtedly causes death. It also injured the spinal column. It passed through the left kidney and also through the loin. And here's an odd bit of trivia. The bullet actually exited Morgan's body and lodged in the thigh of a bystander, mining foreman George A.B. Berry, who survived. Of course, these are just a few of the instances of trauma treated by Goodfellow. He often treated cowboys, gamblers, and other citizens of the Old West to the point where he became somewhat of an authority on gunshot wounds. In fact, it has been claimed that Goodfellow was the first physician known to operate successfully on abdominal gunshot wounds. The first case involved was when a miner outside of Tombstone was shot in the abdomen with a 32 caliber Colt revolver. Seeking attention nine days later on July 13th of 1881, Goodfellow performed the first laparotomy, meaning the opening of the abdomen surgically, for treating a bullet wound, 
Goodfellow found and repaired six holes in the small and large bowel. The patient survived. Now, part of this may be due to Goodfellow's early adoption of Lester's antiseptic principles, washing patients' wounds and his hands with either lye soap or whiskey. Now, given the environment that he practiced in, plus his own indulgences into some of the habits of the local denizens, it may come as no surprise that Goodfellow himself was not immune to violent altercations. At the age of 34, Dr. Goodfellow stabbed an adversary in a fight, dealing a lethal blow with a triple-edged four-inch dagger. The court found the death to be a result of mutual combat, but laid a $25 fine for carrying a concealed weapon, the aforementioned dagger. Following his time in Tombstone, Dr. Goodfellow took over the practice of the lead surgeon in Tucson, who had been gunned down himself. After a few years, he joined the U.S. Army and was involved in the Spanish-American War. And if that wasn't enough of a Forrest Gump-like ability to be present at historical events, he moved to San Francisco in time to be present at the 1906 earthquake, which tragically destroyed nearly all of his records, notes, and unpublished works. Dr. Goodfellow died four years later in 1910 at the age of 54. In many sources on Dr. George Goodfellow, he is credited as the first civilian trauma surgeon in the U.S. This title seems appropriate and the events of his life are fascinating. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this mini-episode, he's also been credited with performing the first perineal prostatectomy, which he developed to remove enlarged prostates in an effort to treat the bladder obstruction caused by them. One source I read claimed that Goodfellow traveled extensively throughout the U.S., training surgeons on the procedure, including our Dr. Hugh Hampton Young, and completed 78, with only two deaths. However, I had difficulty corroborating this claim, as even Dr. Young's autobiography had no mention of Dr. Goodfellow. But let's get back to Dr. Young. One of the issues of removing the prostate through the perineum was poor visualization of the prostate itself, which obviously is less than ideal. Young revolutionized this surgery by modifying it, including developing a prostatic retractor, which pulled the gland down into the surgical wound, allowing direct visualization, an approach he described in 1903. Now, while this approach in general posed a number of potential complications, in Young's hands it had excellent results, and the instrument he created is still used and is referred to as the Young Prostatic Retractor. And perhaps more importantly, it prepared Young for his most famous operation. Like in many medical and scientific discoveries, the important breakthrough came through a chance observation. Young noticed that many of the prostate specimens he removed for enlargement contained cancer. This inspired him to sketch out the idea of the radical perineal prostatectomy. Here are his thoughts on it after seeing two patients with small areas of prostate cancer. Quote, I was struck by the fact that had the entire prostate gland been removed with its capsule, it would have been possible to cure both these patients. Continuing, as a study of the literature revealed that no such radical operation had ever been attempted, I made careful sketches of what I thought would be necessary and showed them to my chief, Dr. William S. Halstead, whose reputation was worldwide because of a very radical operation for cancer of the breast, with which he had cured a large percentage of the patients brought to him. After examining the first patient, Dr. Halstead carefully reviewed my sketches. He appeared greatly impressed, strongly advised me to carry out the operation, and said he would like to assist. End quote. On April 7th of 1904, in the Johns Hopkins Hospital, Young did just that 
becoming the first to remove a prostate for cancer. He was assisted by none other than his chief of surgery, Dr. William S. Halstead. The patient was left with good bladder control three weeks after the operation, and Young would continue to use this operation to great success. In 1905, Young added a significant publication that dealt with the early diagnosis and radical cure of carcinoma of the prostate, publishing 40 cases and introducing the radical perineal prostatectomy, providing for the first time a safe option for treatment of prostate cancer. By 1945, Young reported on 40 years of experience, and out of 184 patients reported, 38 were free of cancer 5.5 to 27 years after surgery. However, in that same year, Dr. Terence Millen, an Irish urologist working out of London, published a report in The Lancet entitled Retropubic Prostatectomy, a New Extravesical Technique, Report on 20 Cases. This was a landmark paper and popularized this new approach, which remains the standard today. Okay, let's wrap this episode up with a bit more on Dr. Young's professional and personal life. He published two important textbooks, The Practice of Urology in 1926, and Genital Abnormalities, Hermaphrodism, and Related Adrenal Diseases in 1937. Dr. Young was often involved in civic duties and helped to establish the Municipal Hospital for Tuberculosis and the School of Engineering at Hopkins. As mentioned earlier, his wife tragically died at a young age, but Young never married again. He did live to see all of his children married, and one of his grandsons, named Hugh Hampton Young, became a urologist. As his wife's family was interested in the arts, Young got involved in saving the Lyric Theatre after it fell into financial difficulties and was sold to the Metropolitan Opera Company of New York. It was going to be turned into a movie house, but Young was able to save it by leading an intensive fund drive and remained president of the Lyric Theatre Company until his death in 1945. The Lyric Theatre, now known as the Medell Performing Arts Centre, is still open. Young was also involved in acquiring land from Johns Hopkins to build a new museum, now the Baltimore Museum of Art. But his real passion seemed to be the new and growing field of aviation. Young was so interested, in fact, that he even designed and patented a retractable landing gear. Around 1929, Young went to Europe and met in London with the president and chief engineer of Imperial Airways, an early predecessor to British Airways. He was impressed by the new dirigibles under construction. Dirigibles are also called airships, with examples including the Hindenburg, Zeppelins, and the Goodyear blimp. Dirigibles comes from the French verb diriger, meaning to steer, as these are powered and steerable as opposed to free-floating like a hot air balloon. And as a lifelong Led Zeppelin fan, I'd be remiss not to share with you the origin of that band's name. The group was originally formed by lead guitarist Jimmy Page to fulfill some performance commitments of the band The Yardbirds, and first played under the name The New Yardbirds. Depending on the source, either Keith Moon, drummer for The Who, or simply a journalist in a review of the new group, suggested that the band would fail, going down like a Led Zeppelin, which would obviously be too heavy to fly. All right, so Dr. Young received an invitation to join the president of Imperial Airways for the inaugural flight of one of his new dirigibles, but was unable to accept, which was fortunate for him as the flight ended with a crash, killing all aboard, including the president of the company. Back home in Maryland, 
Dr. Young chaired a planning committee for what would become the Baltimore-Washington International Airport. The original name was to be Friendship Airport, as the land for the airport was purchased by the Friendship Methodist Church. It went by this name from its opening in 1950 until it was renamed in 1973. Dr. Young retired from the chairmanship of the urology department at Johns Hopkins in 1941, after being at the helm since 1897, a run of 44 years. Continuing to practice, he went to a meeting in Atlantic City in July of 1945 to present a couple of research papers. While there, Dr. Young had a heart attack. Another followed just two days later. By August 18th, he was able to head back to Baltimore, where he was hospitalized at the Brady Clinic. Five days later, Young had a fatal heart attack. The date was August 23rd, 1945. He was less than a month shy of his 75th birthday. Hugh Hampton Young was buried in Druid Ridge Cemetery in Baltimore and is memorialized by the American Urological Association's annual award named after him and given to the individual for outstanding contributions to the study of genitourinary disease. This seems like an appropriate honor to someone that has given so much to the field. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. For those of you that follow me on Twitter, you'll already know what we're covering next, as we had a survey to gauge interest. And in an overwhelming victory, capturing 68% of votes was the dynamic cardiac duo of DeBakey and Cooley. Given how much there will be to cover, I may break it up into two episodes. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>